The following podcast may be a little dirty, but forget about that. I'm going to tell you to go to our Twitter feed at SlateGist.com. It's Monday, January 25th, 2021. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And yes, as you know by now, Larry King has died. A ubiquitous media presence for most of his life, King was less a journalist and more an ingratiating kibitzer. I have great affection for Larry King, his shouting out of city names of callers eager to speak with him, be they large cities. This is the Larry King Show. We go to Atlanta, Georgia. Hello. Or small burgs. Onward to Bartlett, Tennessee. Hello. He was a storyteller, but no Mark Twain, who of course lived in. Hartford, Connecticut. Hello. Hello. And his very best moments, King's very best moments of broadcast, were still fairly mundane. They never really took flight. His shows were decidedly not the birthplace of aviation, that would be. Dayton, Ohio, hello. But here's the interesting thing about Larry King. As a journalist, he wasn't. As an interviewer, he was fair. In remembrances that I read, probably that you read, you hardly saw a reference to a revelation that he elicited. More likely to be cited was an awkward question that he asked, or a strange moment he presided over. If you want to be blunt about it, and I don't mind being blunt about it, he was at times dishonest. He told anecdotes that were proved never to have happened. His last sustained job was for RTTV, the outward-facing Russian propaganda outlet, ProPublica, documented how a few years ago, King was duped, but eagerly duped, into recording a fake interview for the Chinese government. It was, to my eyes, I'm sure, to your ears in a second, it's obviously fake. King was clearly reading from a script, and so was the interviewee. There were several Chinese people who worked in China and allegedly committed crimes there who then fled to the United States and Europe, continuing on with their normal lives while leaving many angry people behind. Now, the target of this propaganda effort was a Chinese dissident who is now living in New York, and China accuses him of crimes, and China's demanding, without success, his deportation to the United States. So we didn't get any Guangzhou, hello, punctuating the sad spectacle, but it was enough to shame a broadcasting icon. Or should have been, but King had become a character for years. He was mindful of his own status as such, and he was able to sidestep the strictures of journalistic ethics, even as he had the highest rated show on CNN for most of his 25 years with the network. He was all owl glasses and suspenders and shout outs in his gravelly baritone to Boise, Idaho. Hello. And Fort Lauderdale. Hello. Always proving his clear connection to his home of Brooklyn, New York. Hello. Of course, everyone who can't afford to live in Brooklyn one day moves to Montclair, New Jersey. Hello. Hello. There is a great story about Larry King and Bob Costas. So Bob Costas used to fill in for Larry King and he had his own late night show and they each challenged each other to produce a guest that the other would have to interview on the spot, cold. So King's choice was Mario Cuomo and Costas did a fine job interviewing the former New York governor. But then Costas countered with meatloaf and there was a problem. Larry King had no doubt eaten meatloaf, but he had no idea who the singer meatloaf was. Hey, do they call you Mr. Loaf? He asked, or at least said he asked in a book recounting the interview. This should have, the fact that he had no idea what to do with Meatloaf, maybe demonstrated the shortcomings of King's famous method of never reading a book or doing any research so as not to suppress his natural curiosity. Okay, but 
Maybe a lick of research would alert you to an interesting vein that you could mine for questions. Hey, who am I to advise? I ask questions on America's 139th most popular news podcast on the iTunes chart. Larry was on CNN for 25 years. The questions were almost never tough. They weren't extremely probing. They were very rarely revelatory. People just like Larry King, the character of Larry King. He won over people, people from Rochester, hello, to this guy from Arlington, Texas, hello. Actually, the guy I have in mind was out of, well, near Arlington in Dallas, Texas, by way of hell. Joining us tonight in Washington is Meatloaf, one of my favorite people. Hi, Larry, how you doing? Hey, Meat. Well, I love when you call me Meat, Larry. Larry King was, at the time of his death, and for at least 30 years prior, 87 years old, and he is survived by, I believe, five of his seven former wives, but it is hard to find all the accurate information, and doing so would require research, which is no way to honor Larry King. His family does ask donations to be sent to... Lincoln, Nebraska. Hello. On the show today, Rand Paul and zombie Republicans. But first... The murder of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018 has been thoroughly investigated and explained in a compelling new documentary from Brian Fogel. Fogel won the Academy Award for Icarus, his documentary on the Russian doping system. And again, in his new documentary, The Dissident, Fogel examines a national effort to undermine laws and norms with the result being depressingly similar. Everyone knows what the country did and no one can punish them. Brian Fogel, director of The Dissident, stops by next. Carbondale, Pennsylvania with Donnie Osmond. Hello. Winkler, Manitoba. Hello. Let's take a call. St. Louis for the artist formerly known as Prince. Hello. The Dissident is the name of the new film by Oscar award-winning director Brian Fogel. It is the story of the death, but also quite importantly, the life and the investigation of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. I say journalist advisedly because there is a demarcation point in this film where he goes from journalist to dissident. This film, a documentary, is also a thriller, and it really is also an excellent piece of explanatory journalism brian fogel thanks for coming back on thanks uh good to, good to be talking to you it's been uh, it's been a few years so what i loved about this is i followed the story pretty closely but it introduces and it lays it out for those who didn't but it also introduces us to i would say two main characters besides the late jamal khashoggi one is mm, i guess you could put Omar Abdulaziz in the category of mentee. And then there is Khashoggi's, well, his widow, essentially. But that was a choice to make, a little bit different from Icarus, where you follow this one main compelling character and tell the story through him. So can you tell me how you decided, how you found out about Abdulaziz and how you decided to tell the story about these two characters and through them? I was immediately drawn to this story as you know, as I read about it, as it, you know, as it was unfolding in real time, I had been looking post Icarus, trying to figure out what that next film, what that next project for me was going to be. I wanted to see to it that whatever that next film was, is that it, it checked these boxes for me. Jamal, a, a moderate who loved his country, who went into self-exile purely because he was not able to speak and write freely 
about his thoughts in the country that he loved. And for that, you know, he ends up uh, being brutally murdered. But what transpired in, in those days after the murder, and I was looking really uh, deeply into this story, was that there was a young Saudi dissident, Omar Abdulaziz, who was in uh, Montreal living in South ex exile. I'm from Saudi Arabia. I was born there, but uh, I cannot go back home, ever. And the New York Times had published a story claiming, you know, that Omar was saying, I, I essentially know why Jamal was killed mm -hmm. and hacked my phone with Pegasus, Israeli cybersecurity software. They had hacked Jamal too. They knew uh, what we were working on, which was essentially a plan for them to gain control over the false narrative that was being painted on Twitter uh, in the kingdom. And that Omar had come forward saying uh, they had actually come to rendition me. And I believe they were they were uh, wanting to uh, to kill me, too. And he had audio uh, and proof of this. And so his participation immediately felt key to me if I was going to tell this story. Uh, the same with Atisha Jenga's Jamal's fiance, which, you know, of course, is the, the, the global media images around the world are of this woman who was waiting for him outside the consulate to get marriage papers. The question immediately to me, you know, became, I mean, how this unfathomable loss and what would Hatija, this woman, do in the fallout of his death? And, um, and that, to me, felt like the emotional connection to the story and the way that an audience could come to love Jamal because Jamal obviously was gone. And so Hatija felt like the emotional connection uh, into the story. And again, it was, would she work with me, trust me, and work with me exclusively? And then last was the Turks. And uh, here, you know, Turkey had been, had all the evidence, was actively working to prosecute the crime. And in order to be able to tell this story truthfully, it felt that I needed to bring things forward that were not in the public domain, um, speak to people that otherwise were not speaking on camera, and get evidence, both video, transcript, and otherwise, uh, that could paint the, the thriller-esque true crime narrative. Yeah, listen, I would guess that if you just show the first four minutes of this movie to most people and say, guess the genre, they wouldn't say documentary. I mean, it feels like Soderbergh. It's a thriller. We meet the main character. Even the way that, you know, he's not seated. He's pacing. He's a little frantic. You, you as a viewer get snippets of conversation. It's something... You know, it's not, it's definitely not a documentary. It's some, some different compelling genre. And I'll also say, I'm not the kind of person who, who needs nonfiction gussied up to works. So I, I very much like straightforward, you know, factual recitation. But this really does work and it doesn't work as, you know, a quirk or a gimmick, right? It's not a gimmick. It works just as well as a fictional story would work, but it is nonfiction. It happens to be compelling to the point where I will lay another compliment on you. I think it is the first movie in history where the main action sequence is told via a transcript. I think documentary can take many forms. 
But I think that if you can engage an audience visually, cinematically, use the techniques of, of the Paul Greengrass and, and the Bourne films, use the technique of Soderbergh and, and his Ocean's Eleven's films and, uh, and so much of his other work where you're in this world of cinema verite and it's, and it's constant kinetic motion. One of, the, one of the inspirations for me was Christopher Nolan's Inception, where the entire movie, to this day, I'm utterly confused what it's about, what's going on. It's totally, I have no idea. All that I know is that movie starts, and for two and a half hours, you're sitting there going, I can't take my eyes off the screen. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And that's that technique of building the music and the sound and the sound design and and how that all uh, comes together. So this, I, I feel, can can be implied and, and applied to documentary. And in the story uh, of Jamal Khashoggi and his murder, this felt clear to me of how to uh, craft it. And when you talk about that sequence of the transcript, what, what we're talking about is his the actual transcript of his murder. And uh, right as I was finishing the film, I had been offered pieces of the audio, which nobody in the world has still heard outside of intelligence, of the actual murder. And uh, Turkey even offered me to sit in a room and basically do the Warner Herzog Grizzly Man. And, and both of those felt so, what is that word? Exploitative and almost like going into the area of like a snuff film or something that it, it, it just, it was pushing shock for the sake of shock rather than telling the story. And so instead of using the actual audio, which I also, um, out of respect to Hatija, his fiance, Omar, his family, people that loved him, I didn't feel like anybody really needed to hear that. And so instead, we, we chose to take this transcript and, and turn the transcript into its own living, breathing character. Some of the tape recordings we've heard preceded the killing. The doctor Tubegi explained how the body is going to be dismembered. And, and the modeling of that was kind of like the uh, Hitchcock psycho scene, the shower scene, where it, the presence of that knife and what's happening is so strong without the actual visual, you know, murder itself. And that was kind of how we went about in crafting uh, to turn that transcript using the this colors and figures in the background and these shadows and, and this idea of suffocation and murder and death, but being seen visually through the words on the page. So was this the sort of sequence that you worked over and over and over again to make sure that it was having its desired effect? Y yes. I mean, the, the, the idea was, was that, you know, it, and that was a, an idea of using light, sound, and like these flashes of light and like images, like almost like, you know, you walk into somewhere and you feel on edge and you don't know why you feel on edge, but because there's, there's a strobe light flashing, there's something that is feeling not right. And, and in that sequence, my creative team and I work to craft that feeling of, of being there in the room, of, of having that, you know, that, that you're no longer feeling something in, in your mind 
Instead, it was in your stomach. It was in your gut. And that was where we used, you know, really that, that heavy sound design, the score, those strings, the violin, the cello coming in with also these, you know, drum beats, these, you know, these, this, this rattling, and then the, the use of the, of light and contours and design that, that make you kind of feel like you're, hopefully that you feel like you're, you're in that moment. And also, I would say that cinemagraphically, doing those big, ambitious, visually ambitious uh, set pieces commits you to having the rest of the film be in a pretty grand, expensive cinematic style. So it opens with these sweeping shots and you have these probably drone vistas of the city. This is not some small talking heads documentary. You're committed to a certain tone throughout the thing in order to not bump the viewer when you go through these animated or other grand scenes? From the outset, our goal was to create a cinematic thriller. Even the the opening of, of the movie where you're, you open in on, you know, in the hotel room of Omar Abdulaziz and he's talking about this plan and that he's going to get revenge and he'll take any, you know, any path necessary to do that. It immediately kind of goes, wait, wait, I thought this was the story of Jamal Khashoggi, who's this guy? It was an intentional setting the hook of that cinematic thriller, that, that dangler of, whoa, there's, there's a mystery here. There's somebody that, you know, we don't even know about. And, and he's talking, you know, revenge. And he's saying that his life is in danger. And so the, the intention there was just to immediately hook in an audience. And hopefully, as this film unfolds over an hour and 55 minutes, you're on the edge of your seat uh, for the vast majority of that time. And tomorrow we'll be back to talk to Brian some more as a documentarian, but also as an expert on the issue who draws conclusions about the Saudi cover-up attempts and if they have or could ever face repercussions. And now the spiel. Senator Rand Paul was on This Week, This Week, denying reality and counter-arguing, no, George Stephanopoulos, you're only saying those true things because you're not Republican enough to understand the untruth. Here was the very much not a difficult question that set off the senator. Senator Paul, let me begin with a threshold question for you. Uh, This election was not stolen. Do you accept that fact? Possible correct answers include yes, of course, no doubt. Senator Paul's actual answer... Well, what I would say is that the debate over whether or not there was fraud should occur. We never had any presentation in court where we actually looked at the evidence. Most of the cases were thrown out uh, for lack of standing, which is a procedural way of not actually hearing the question. There were several states in which the law was changed by the Secretary of State and not the state legislature. I shall fade him down now to spare you his particular brand of tiptoeing away from the facts. Yeah, I guess you could argue that it's maybe interesting in a clinical way to see if the election denier in question goes full on, Dominion is controlled by the Chinese and Venezuelans, or if he engages in a tendentious process argument. Actually, if you were to create a taxonomy of disinformation, you would find some activists like Lynn Wood or Fox News hosts like Lou Dobbs or Nothing to Lose representatives from super safe districts like Jim Jordan. Those are the guys that dispense with all the subtleties. They don't argue process. They just say it was stolen. But Paul, like the other senators, Cruz and Hawley, he tries to get clever. This is why one version of the headline summarizing his response on ABC News was, 
Senator Paul does not unequivocally say 2020 election wasn't stolen. Wow. Trying to follow that one. Here's a rewrite of that headline. Senator who is not Mitt Romney does not unequivocally pantomime, but using words that the 2020 election wasn't not unstolen. But in truth, even the main ABC headline and host George Stephanopoulos himself were perfectly clear. No, Senator, what you're saying isn't true. Here was the headline on ABC. Senator Rand Paul continues making false claims of 2020 election fraud. That's good. Here was Stephanopoulos. Senator, I said what the president said was a lie because he said, hold on a second. He said the election was stolen. This election was not stolen. The results were certified in every single state. Now, it should be noted that Rand Paul is far from the craziest or stupidest or most opportunistic members among the Republicans in the U.S. Senate. I already mentioned Cruz and Hawley. They're not stupid. And to the list of not stupid, I would also add Tom Cotton. And then there's, of course, Wisconsin's Ron Johnson, who is not Miss America 1968. No, that would be Deborah Baines, who is from Eudora, Kansas. Hello. Hello. Rand Paul had heretofore been known as principled or, you know, somewhat principled, a libertarian. Sometimes the libertarian stances and principles would find him in opposition to the entirety of his party. But if you want to know who a real principled libertarian is, it's Justin Amash, who essentially had to leave Congress because he was so principled. He saw what the lawless autocrat in the making of Donald Trump was and represented. And he said, I can't go with you on exonerating him in the first impeachment. Rand Paul now a juror in the second impeachment has taken quite the opposite stance. Paul being libertarian doesn't mean that he always stood for righteousness, doesn't mean that he always did what was right. But sniveling party politics of the kind that emphasize elbowing aside his other ambitious peers just to lock up a certain lane within the party, that wasn't before the last few years his M.O., Just consider Paul's full-throatedness on this issue, this issue such as it is, this lie, his eagerness to advance the lie. It speaks extremely poorly of Paul, but it tells you that the Republican Party is in a dangerous place because the majority of its members really do want this to be the thing that is said, because this is the thing that they agree with. So even the most outlandish claims, outlandish absurdities on their face like this one. Where their dead people voted. Get repeated. Now, as a public service, I can prove that dead people didn't vote. And here's my proof. Zombies aren't real. Thank you. The defense rests. Although maybe zombies are real. And maybe that's what the Republican Party will become. Maybe that's what the Republican Party is. You know, in the New York Times, two different columnists, Paul Krugman and Charles Blow, in recent years, and add to that list, Fintan O'Toole of the New York Review of Books, have written columns calling Republicans the zombie party. But they mean all different things by it. Blow means that Trump zombified a party. Mm -hmm. Krugman means the Republicans were pre-zombified, making their takeover by Trump easier. And O'Toole means Republicanism is dead and its spasmodic twitchings are not evidence to the contrary, rather just a sign that we may have a zombie on our hands. I get the attraction to zombie comparisons. Zombies are brainless and inelegant, of course, without morals. Plus, the phrase death cult applies to zombies in much of Trump, the Trump part of the Republican Party, at least. I bet that senators like Paul, who are trying to draft alongside the currents of furor over election fraud, think they're being quite clever. They don't think of themselves as zombies. 
maybe they'd admit to being a little like Buffalo Bill, the serial killer in Silence of the Lambs, who just yearns to wear a cloak of human skin. By the way, key scenes of Silence of the Lambs filled in... Keysport, Pennsylvania. Hello. Hello! But is it goodbye to the Republicans? Because, why, someone says so? Democrats, most of the Democrats I'm hearing from are saying the Republicans are in terrible shape or people who are never Trump Republicans are saying, "Uh uh-oh, this party's screwed. The side of Rand Paul continuing to engage in these lies and not on a Newsmax show in a forum like ABC's This Week that he knows is going to be hostile to him, that he does so willingly and eagerly. It tells me that Republicans in the Senate think that there is purchase in this nonsense not going away. So what makes it zombified that their opponents say it's zombified, that it's in stark contrast to the truth? Yeah, because that has always been a disqualifier in U.S. politics. I'm a little tired of predictions, actually, of the rift between the dead and the undead in the Republican Party, right? The dead being Republicans who think that this false claim of rigged elections are one they should be pounding over and over versus maybe the dead who at least accept it and want to throw a funeral for it. So what does all of this embrace rejection or toe touch with a lie? What does it augur for the future of the Republican Party? I don't know, and neither do all the people who are examining the corpse. If it is a corpse, if it is a zombie, if it is, in fact, still alive, and maybe we buried it too early. Rand Paul was widely assailed as lying for what he said on ABC's This Week. So if the Republican Party were really dead, if there was really a change in the air, you would think that Rand Paul would look at his coverage and say, oh my gosh, and it would cow him. Do you think that that's what's going to happen? I say not one bit. I would say it will embolden him because politicians wait for signals and those signals are elections. Maybe some other things, some huge fundraising or polling development. But I don't see Republicans giving up this line of attack anytime soon without evidence that what they're doing is hurting themselves. I see the majority of Republicans, or at least a lot more than 17 of them, voting against conviction in the Senate, thus dooming the efforts of conviction. And I see talk of the party being decimated or undead, just that, talk, without any firm signal. And if an attack on the U.S. Capitol isn't that signal, I don't know that we can ever have one that will be so clear that Rand Paul hears it. And that's it for today's show. Shana Roth produces the gist. She wonders what is the largest state capital in terms of population? Phoenix, hello. Hello. To which producer Margaret Kelly asks, okay, but what's the most populous state capital named for a U.S. president? It's Madison, Wisconsin on the Larry King Show. Hello. Ooh, sorry. Cannot accept that. Does executive producer of Slate Podcast Alicia Montgomery have a guess? Lincoln, Nebraska. Hello. Hello. The gist in the next hour. Madeline Albright and Yo-Yo Ma. And tomorrow, for the full hour, Miss Piggy. Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog. Boom-proo-dap-roo-doo-proo. And thanks for listening. Miss Piggy!